food. Now, I have to tell you, earlier in my studies I, as a younger person, I would sometimes scratch my head because it was just unfathomable to me. Just how in the world can a human being do that? And I began to think, well, maybe it, because he was the son of God, maybe he kind of used some power to be able, no, 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 because he was what? Tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And so if Jesus in any way tapped into any divine power, that statement would be false. And so we know that's not true. And so I began doing a little research on it and come to find out that Jesus is not the only human being who has done this. There have been other human beings who have fasted 38 days, 39 days, 40 days. In fact, what the evidence shows in the historical record of humanity is that this is on the outer limit of what the human body can do in terms of going without food. I think understanding that puts in more context, and afterward he was hungry, does it not? And does it surprise us that the devil comes along, the tempter, and hits him right between the eyes, right where he's most vulnerable, and says, if you are the son of God, demand that these stones become bread. And that's a powerful, powerful temptation. And there are a couple of temptations in there. There's the obvious one of asking Jesus to use power in an inappropriate, unauthorized way. Yeah, remember again, it was God the Spirit who led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But there's also an interesting temptation, I think, certainly that I would be tempted by. If I were Jesus and the devil had come to me and said, if you are the Son of God, what do you mean if? My pride would have gotten the best of me. What do you mean? I'll show you. Of course I'm the Son of God. But Jesus didn't do either one of those things. What Jesus did is he referred to God's word. He said, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He understood that there was word of God that addressed this situation. And he quoted to Satan that powerful word that, no, I'm going to live by what's authorized. I don't have authority to use my power that way. I'm going to do what God tells me. I'm not going to go one iota beyond the boundaries that God has set upon me. I'm not going to do this, Satan. And it's interesting to me that he quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 in doing so. Because there is so many, uh, there are so many parallels between the two instances that it seems so apropos for the Lord to reach out in his memory and pull Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 to say to Satan, I'm not going to do that. I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 and see if we can appreciate uh, some of those parallels. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy the 8th chapter Verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. The Bible says this. Every command, remember this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. There is our quote that Jesus reached out and presented to Satan in response to that temptation. And as I said, there are just remarkable parallels between Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 and Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You know, in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, who is being addressed? It is the children of God. The children of God. And Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 11, who are we talking about? The Son of God. 
If we go back to Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, the Bible tells us that God led the children of God into the wilderness. And if we go over again to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, what does it say? That God the Spirit led Jesus, the Son of God, into the wilderness. Go back to Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. What was the length of time that they wandered in that wilderness? 40 years. When we go back to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, what was the length of time that Jesus was in that wilderness? 40 days. And did you notice in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, that God allowed the children of Israel to hunger? He allowed them. But yes, in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, God allowed his son to hunger. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, God expected the children of God, the children of Israel, to trust on Him and rely upon Him. And there's no question in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, that God expected Jesus to trust upon Him and rely upon Him. And then we go back to Deuteronomy and we notice that God provides for His people. He provided the manna, right? To address their needs. And when we go back to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, God provided for the needs of Jesus when he sent what? Angels to minister to him. So many wonderful parallels between Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 and Matthew 4, 1 through 11. So is there any wonder that our Lord would reach out and pull that passage to respond to the temptation that was given to him? Are you living by the word of God? Which leads us to the first point I want to make this morning. To live by the word of God is to know and understand the Word of God. Let's say that again. To live by the Word of God is to know and to understand the Word of God. Think again about what we just read from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Jesus was presented with a temptation, right? And what did Jesus do? Jesus understood that, you know, there is Word of God that applies to this circumstance, this situation, the the place I find myself in. There is Word of God that applies to that. He remembered that word of God. He recalled that word of God. And remembering and recalling that word of God fortified his will against the temptation that the devil was offering. You see that? It's so important. If we're going to live by the word of God like Jesus did, we have to know the word of God. You cannot live by that which you do not know. Jesus knew the word of God. And we need to know the word of God if we're going to live by the word of God. So many wonderful promises that are given to us by God in the Word of God. One of those that I'm especially fond of is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that with every temptation, there will be a way of escape. But I'm afraid that so many Christians are so ignorant of God's Word, we don't even know when we're in spiritual jeopardy. We've got to know, brethren. We have to know the Word of God to live by the Word of God. How well do you know God's will? How much do you study God's will? We put such an emphasis on that for the young people and the kids. And we make sure they do their lessons and they do the workbooks and they have their memory work done. And they're prepared. But what about us? There's no spiritual tenure. (laughs) We act like that. We've gone through that system. We've got tenure now. So we're just going to coast on accumulated knowledge. No. To live by the word of God is to know the word of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy, the second chapter and verse 15. The Bible says, Be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, 
rightly dividing the word of truth. I like that. Be diligent. Work at it. (laughs) Work hard. You know that Bible study is work, right? Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God. Whose approval am I seeking? Not seeking the approval of my parents. Not seeking the approval of my friends. Not seeking the approval necessarily of my spouse. All of which is wonderful. But here, the approval being sought is the approval of God. I'm presenting myself approved to God. A workman who needs not be ashamed. Why would a workman be ashamed? Because he doesn't know the word of God. Because he cannot do what the rest of the verse says. Rightly divide the word of truth. We need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth because that very phrase implies what? That you can wrongly divide the word of truth. And that will cost you your soul. And so we need to be diligent. The old King James Version, study to show thyself approved unto God. How much time do we invest in studying God's word? I know we live busy lives. We have a lot of things that buy for our time and our attention, a lot of competing demands upon our time, but we have got to control our schedules so that we have time to study God's word. If we're going to live by the word of God, we have to know it. Look at what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 16. 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verses 12 through 16. The Bible says, Let no one despise your youth. This is Paul, an older man, speaking to Timothy, a younger man. Let no one despise your youth. Be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul says, young people, don't let anybody look down their noses at you because you're young. Don't let anybody despise you because you're young. Don't let anybody overlook you because you're young. You know what you do though? You don't bow up in pride and say, let me defend. No, he says, you be an example. You be an example to the believers in word and conduct and faith and purity and spirit and love. You show the principles of Christ. You show the disposition of Christ. You show the biblical teachings in your life. And by doing that, you as young people would be an example to all the believers. But in the midst of giving that instruction to this young man, he says, I want you to give attention to some things. I want you to give attention to reading God's word. I want you to give attention to exhortation from God's word. I want you to give attention to doctrine taught in God's word. You see that? He's always giving attention to these things, but he goes even further. He said, I want you to meditate on these things. Now, folks, meditation is not what you do when you spent the whole day doing what you wanted to do. You did your work, did your job, you had your hobbies, had your recreation, went to the movies once see, went fishing, hunting, whatever it is. And you get to the end of the day, you're about to go to bed, crawl up into the covers. You got your Bible on the lampstand, you feel guilty, so I need to read a little bit of Bible. So I pull it out and I read about a couple of verses in a chapter and fall asleep. That's not meditation. That's not even good Bible reading. <laughs> He says, meditate on these things. Think about them. Dwell upon them. And then he says something that's truly remarkable. He says, give yourself entirely to them. What? No, 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 no. Paul, you understand, we're we're Americans. We have a saying, all things in moderation. (laughs) And don't get too crazy with it. I I remember hearing the judge one time, he was talking about his... Uh, daughter about to get married to a fellow and he was commenting on this fellow and he said well you know he's a good guy and a good kid and all but man he's just too religious (laughs) 
He just takes this stuff too seriously. I mean, yeah, we all need to have a little bit of religion and go to church. and all, But he just takes it too seriously. So that's what a lot of us believe. But what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, give yourself entirely to them. That's not moderation. <laughs> that's all in, brothers. All in. And then he says something. If you do that, if you give attention to reading, if you give attention to exhortation, if you give attention to doctrine, if you meditate on these things, if you give yourself entirely to them, you know what's going to happen? He says that your progress may be evident to all. What's he talking about? Progress. What does that mean? Let's grow. That's spiritual growth. He says if you do these things, you are going to grow, and now you're going to grow, it's going to be obvious to those around you. Now, let me let you know on a secret. That formula that Paul just articulated in 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 17, or 16, it's not limited to young people. It's not limited to young people. If I, as a middle-aged person, give attention to reading, give attention to exhortation, give attention to doctrine, meditate on these things, give myself entirely to them, and guess what? My progress will be evident to all. That's how we grow. We've got to study. We've got to be serious about this. How serious are you about your Bible study? How often do you crack open the book to study? There's no substitute for that, folks. I don't care how many years you've been in the church. I don't care who your father was or your mother was, all the sermons you've heard. You need a steady diet of God's Word. I tell you what. If we ate the way we studied the Bible, there'd be a lot of thin people walking around here. Hey, including myself. We need a steady diet. That's our spiritual nourishment. And somebody said, well, Kevin, there's just so many difficult things, and there's so many things that are hard to understand. I hear you. Not only do I hear you, God hears you. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. 2 Peter chapter 3, 14 through 16. 2 Peter, the third chapter, verses 14 through 16. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 16. The Bible says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, talking about the second coming of the Lord and destruction of the universe when that happens, be diligent, be diligent, there's that word again, to be found by him, Jesus, in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now listen to verse 16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. The Apostle Peter said by inspiration that, yes, there are some things that Paul wrote in his inspired epistles that are hard to understand that are difficult to understand. So don't think that everything in God's Word is, as we say, low-hanging fruit. Everything in God's Word can be received by surface study. No, he says there are some things you've got to dig it out. (laughs) It's hard to understand. But you know what he didn't say? He didn't say it was impossible to understand. It can be understood. He just said you've got to work on it. You've got to put some effort in it. You've got to put some time in it. And so that's the, if we're going to live by God's word, we need to know God's word. But let me give you a second point. And the second point is this, to live by the word of God is, well, actually, let me, let me reverse myself. I'm going to, I, there's a second part of that that I didn't give you. Because if you remember, I said to live by the word of God is to know and understand the word of God. Let's talk about that last part before we move on. We're moving on too quick. So what does it mean to, to understand? We've talked about knowing, but what does it mean to understand the word of God? Go back to Matthew 4, and we're going to look at uh, 5 through 7. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. 
Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 5 through 7. To live by the word of God is to know and understand the word of God. We're still under the first point. Don't want to move on too quickly. Then the devil took him, Jesus, up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you shall bear, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Interesting here. So the devil has ratcheted up his game, right? So the first time it was just an appeal. Hey, if you're the Son of God, uh, command that these stones become bread. But now he sees what Jesus did, and Jesus quoted scripture. Say, hey, I quote scripture too. And so he quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. He says, okay, on the basis of that, throw yourself down. Okay. Let's see how much you believe. That, that's the script. You want to quote scripture? I'm quoting scripture. Go ahead. See, see what you're going to do. And what does Jesus say? He understands that Satan has misinterpreted what Psalm 91, 11 through 12 means. And so it's not enough to simply know the Word of God. You have to understand it the way Jesus understood it. He didn't just know it. He couldn't just call it to memory, but he understood what it meant. And I want us to be clear about what happened here. This, this is what did not happen. It wasn't that you've got the devil over here, and, and he draws Psalm 91, 11 through 12. And then God come, or Jesus comes, and he draws uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 16. And that trumps Psalm 91, 11 through 12. No, that's not what happened at all. In fact, Jesus did not deny that what Satan said in terms of quoting the Scripture. He did not deny that that was Scripture. He did not deny that that was inspired Word of God just as much as what he had written before, what he had invoked before Deuteronomy 8, 3. What he said, though, was, and I love the way he says it, he says, it is written again. Think about that. It is written again. What's he telling Satan? He's saying, yeah, there is Psalm 91, 11 through 12. But there's also Deuteronomy 6, 16. And you can't understand Psalm 91, 11 through 12 in a vacuum. You don't understand it by itself. You don't just pluck it out of its context. But you have to take... Everything God has to say on the subject, put it together, and then you get the truth. So when you take Psalm 91, 11 through 12, and you overlay it with Deuteronomy 6.16, then you understand because Deuteronomy 6.16 says, you should not tempt the Lord your God. So what you're saying can't be true because that interpretation violates Deuteronomy 6.16. Therefore, you're wrong. And that's an impressive principle that we need to use it. Because what Jesus is really showing us is one of the oldest hermeneutical tools uh, of biblical understanding and biblical interpretation. That is, let Scripture interpret Scripture. You see? Let me give you an example. Turn over to Mark chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. To live by the Word of God is to not only know the Word of God, but it is to understand it as well. Mark 10, 11 through 12. Mark 10, 11 through 12. Mark 10, 11 through 12. The Bible says, So he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, based on that passage, I want to ask you this question. I want you to assume for a second you don't know anything else about God's word. All you know on this subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is Mark 10, 11 through 12. That's it. Don't think about anything else. Those verses right there. 
And I ask you this question. Is there any scenario where a man can divorce his wife and marry another and be pleasing in the sight of God? So let me say again, make sure we all understand. Is there any scenario, any circumstance where a man can put away his spouse and marry another and be pleasing to God based only on Mark 10, 11 through 12? The answer is no. Based on those two verses. Because those two verses don't have any exception. It just says, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you commit adultery. Period. Bam. But it, let's follow the words of Jesus, it is written again in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Turn over there. It is written again in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. It is written again. More teaching on this subject. Matthew 19, 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, we have more word of God on this subject of what can a man do in terms of divorcing and remarrying. Now, in Matthew 19, 9, we got additional information that was not in Mark 10, 11 through 12. And that additional information is there's an exception. If a man puts away his spouse for sexual immorality, then, yes, he can marry another and not commit adultery. Assuming, of course, that the other has the right to be married as well. But see how that is additional information that has to be brought to bear to understand what is God's teaching on that subject. Folks, when we study God's Word, we can't just pluck verses out of context. We can't just study in a, a vacuum a particular chapter. If we want to know the truth of the thing, it's like Psalm 119, 160. The entirety of thy Word is truth. The old King James. The sum of thy Word is truth. In other words, you must take everything God has to say on a subject to properly understand that subject. And that requires, ladies and gentlemen, Bible study. Bible study. Oh, so many false doctrines have been created by people just plucking certain uh, verses here and there and not understanding the entirety of what God has said on that subject. The sum of thy word is truth. We want everything. You tell people when they do that to you, yes, that verse says that. It is written again. God says more on this. And let's bring that to bear as well. So it's not only enough for us to know God's will. We have to understand. Not only is it required that we know and understand the word of God in order to live by it, but to live by the word of God means to obey the word of God. To live by the word of God means to obey the word of God. What what if this had happened in Matthew 4, 1 through 11? Jesus had been presented with a temptation from Satan saying, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus had called to mind, Deuteronomy 8, 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Understood what that meant, but went ahead and converted the stones into bread anyway and ate. Would that have been pleasing to God? I mean, he knew the word of God, right? He understood the word of God. He just didn't do what he knew and understood. Of course, that wouldn't have been pleasing to God. It's not enough. It's necessary to know and understand the will of God, but it's not sufficient. We have to not only know and understand, but we have to obey what we know and what we understand. And I'll tell you, this is a point where a lot of religious people 
uh, misunderstand. Uh, obedience just gone out of style. It's just extinct like a dinosaur. People don't want to talk about want to talk about mercy. Want to talk about the grace. Uh, want to talk about forgiveness. But but nobody wants to talk about forgiveness. They're just embarrassed. I mean, not forgive obedience. Nobody wants to talk about obedience. And I find that interesting because God, over and over again, both in the Old and the New Testaments, talks about obedience. So many times it's hard. How can you miss it? Look what he says about loving Jesus in John 14, 15. You know, everybody says they love Jesus. I love the Lord. I love the Savior. Well, you know, Jesus has a litmus test for that. Jesus is not worried about what's coming out of your mouth in terms of what you profess. He says it's got to be more than that. And John 14, 15 tells us what that more is. I love Jesus. I love the Lord. I, I love God. Well, Jesus says there's a test for that. If we really want to know... Whether we love the Lord, Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Wait a minute. He, he's talking about obedience. Yeah, he is. Jesus just said that if I truly love him, if I truly have the disposition of heart that I'm supposed to, then I have to do what he says. That's exactly what he said. And guess what the flip side of that is? What if I, I profess that I love the Lord. And emotionally, I feel like I love the Lord. And I, I like to tell people that I love the Lord, but I'm not keeping His commandments. Do I love the Lord? No. Because Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I don't know where we get this notion that obedience is not a part of obeying God. Obedience is not a part of serving God. Obedience is not important. I see in my scripture over and over again. In fact, in that very same passage, jump down to uh, 23 and 24 of the same chapter, John 14. Jesus answered and said to him, he's answering Judas, Judas, not Iscariot. If anyone loves me, again, conditional. If anyone loves me, what will he do? He will keep my word and my father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So Jesus makes it pretty clear. Two kinds of people in the world. There are people who keep his word and people who don't. If you keep his word, you love him. If you don't, you don't. And that, that's as plain and simple as it gets. There's no nuance on that one. You're just in one camp there. Either you love the Lord, you do what he says, or you don't, and, and you don't do it. You see? Obedience is important, folks. We need to make sure people know that. James 1, 21 through 27. James 1, 21 through 27. To live by the word of God is not only to know it and understand it, but to live by the word of God is to obey the word of God. James chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. James, the first chapter, verses 21 through 27. Somebody made the mistake of telling me not to pay attention to the time this morning. So I'm following that advice. It might be y'all's regret. Hope y'all had a good breakfast. James 1, 21 through 27. James 1, 21 27. The Bible says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the what the implanted word which is able to save your souls but listen to this verse 22 but be what but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror for he observes himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does if anyone among you thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion, for God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Folks, it's not enough just here. It's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to understand. 
James says we've got to do the word of God. We've got to be doers of the word. And, and he gives a warning there. He says we can deceive ourselves thinking that the mere fact that we know what God says and we understand what God says, the mere fact that we have that knowledge and understanding, well, that makes us right in the eyes of God. He says don't deceive yourself. You've got to go another step. You've got to do what you know. You've got to do what you know. You know, sometimes uh, I talk to my dad about some things in the scriptures and uh, he'd always have a, if we got something really difficult, he'd always come back to this. He said, well, he said, we probably need to study that a little bit more. But uh, you know what? He said, I think most of us know enough that we can do what God wants us to do. And it's not the stuff that we haven't quite understood that's going to get us in trouble. A lot of us are going to get in trouble because we don't do what we already know. Well, amen. We've got to obey the truth that we've heard. We've got to obey the truth that we've studied. We've got to obey the truth that we've understood. We've got to do what God says. And folks, when we do that, we don't do anything to detract from the glory of God. There's, there's an argument out there in the religious world that by emphasizing obedience, by talking about obedience, by demanding as God demands obedience, that somehow we are detracting from the glory of God. We are denying the grace of God. We are denying the sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Some uh, thinking along those lines was shown by a friend of mine one time. We were having a discussion in school. And um, he was talking about, he was a religious fellow. And so was his wife. And they had been discussing some issue from the scriptures about what it meant. And kind of debating and discussing it. And he was telling me about that. And he was very frustrated with his wife. He was very frustrated with it. Because here's what he said. He said, Kevin, my wife doesn't understand all this digging out, all this debating, all this trying to figure out what that means. Doesn't she understand we're saved by grace? Now listen to that. What, what, what's in there? Well, if you're saved by grace, finding out what the Word of God says, not that important. If you're saved by grace, obeying what the Word of God says, not that important. And there are a lot of people who think that. That grace is somehow this license to sin. I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want to. Don't, don't be so particular about knowing the Word of God and obeying the Word of God and making sure you get it right. we got grace that covers that. You know, the Apostle Paul covered that argument. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. 1 and 2. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. To live by the Word of God is not only to hear it and understand it, but it is to obey it. Romans 6, verses 1 through 2. Romans 6, chapter, verses 1 through 2. Romans 6, 1 through 2. The Bible says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And what's the answer to that rhetorical question? Verse 2, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Does that sound like grace is a license to sin? <laughs> the very opposite. He said, don't tell me that every time we sin, it just makes God's grace that greater. So we ought to just be loose about it and sin more. And grace is that much greater. And God is that much more glorified. He said, no. He said, we have died to sin. How dare we live any longer in it? When he answered that question, he said, not just not, certainly not, emphatically not. And in case you missed it the first time around, he hit it again in Romans 6.15. Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's the question that my friend was posing. What's the answer again? Certainly not. Don't take advantage of what you think the grace of God is. The grace of God is that 
we have an opportunity to be reconciled back to God. The only way that can be done. But you don't turn around and slap God in the face by just living any other way and act like uh, grace is some insurance policy for sin. That's not the way it works, brethren. We've got to get serious about getting sin out of our lives. We don't live in sin. We don't wallow in sin. We don't dwell in sin. We've got to be serious about obedience, about doing what God says. You know, obedience is such an important thing. Here's something that's really remarkable. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 8 through 9. To live by the word of God is not only to know it and understand it, but it is to obey it, to obey the word of God. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 8 through 9. The Bible says this. Though he, Jesus, was a son. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation uh, to all who once obeyed him. No, to all who used to obey him. No, to all who want to obey him. No, to all who would like to obey him. No, to all who sporadically, no, to all who obey him, current, present tense. Though he was a son, even the Son of God learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Who do we think we are? The Son of God learned obedience, and we just want to throw it out. And he, by virtue of that, has become the author of eternal salvation. Not to everyone. No, he has a category of people in mind. To those who obey him. Present tense. Not I used to. Back in the day, once. Are you obeying Jesus? Then he's the author of your salvation. Are you not obeying Jesus? Then he is not the author of your eternal salvation. Friends, this is a serious thing. We've got to obey. If we want to live by the word of God, we've got to obey the word of God. Now I know somebody said, wait a minute. No, no, no. I see what you're trying to do. You think you're going to march into the pearly gates of heaven based on your resume, your CV. Look what I've done. I've obeyed this. I've obeyed that. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. See, people confuse that. When a person shows that they are very careful about their study of God's Word, and they're very careful about their knowledge of God's Word, and they're very careful about their understanding of the Word of God, and they're very careful about obeying the Word of God, well, somehow that person is trying to achieve some kind of works-based salvation. We don't do that. We know we're not, we're not, they're not going to be saved by, by law-keeping. In fact, you had uh, some Jewish Christians in Galatians 5.4 that were in jeopardy of losing their salvation because of that. But here's the thing, folks. When I understand what God has done for me, when I understand what Jesus has done for me, when I think to all the awful, terrible things that I, Kevin Clark, have done in this life, and the fact that that slate can be wiped clean by the blood of Jesus, when I think about the great sacrifice that was made so much that Jesus, from his lips, was wrenched the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When I think about those things, there ought to be gratitude in my heart. There ought to be thanksgiving in my heart. There ought to be love in my heart. And that gratitude and that thanksgiving and that love pushes me. I want to do everything in my power to please my God. And that means trying to do everything that God has said. That means obedience to all of his word. Uh, look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. The Bible says this. Therefore we make it our aim, 
whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's our goal in life. In everything we do and how we conduct ourselves in the workplace, how we conduct ourselves at school, how we interact with our spouses, how we interact with our children, how we interact with our grandparents or our cousins, how we go about using our money, how we engage in hobbies, how we engage in recreational acts. There is not an activity under the sun that doesn't have word of God that governs that. And we are so devoted to pleasing him, we're going to find that word of God, we're going to know that word of God, we're going to understand that word of God, and yes, we're going to obey that word of God. You see that? We want to be pleasing to God in everything. And so, yes, obedience is important. And we're not negating the grace of God when we say that. But we do need to get serious about sin, folks. We really need to get serious about sin. I think sometimes we forget. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Look at that real quick. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 1 John, the second chapter, verse 1. The Bible says this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we read that verse, and we want to jump over the first part and go to, isn't that great? We have Jesus as an advocate with the Father. Yes, that's great, but slow down, go back. My little children, I wrote these things to you that you may not sin. Did you get that? God's serious about sin. God expects us to stamp out sin in our lives. And I know sometimes I worry, because I, even some of our prayers, we've got to be really careful, because some of the prayers could be interpreted to suggest that we're just sinning all the time. <laughs> we're just sinning all the time. Blood of Jesus just cleanses, but we're just sinning all the time. And I think to myself again, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, before every temptation, there's going to be a way, or with every temptation, there's going to be a way of escape. Now, let's let that digest for a second. So anytime there's a temptation for a Christian, the Lord has promised there's a way of escape. Do you believe that or do you not? If you believe that, then can you take that way of escape for a minute? I think so. Can you take, take the way of escape for 10 minutes? I think so. Can you take the ways of escape that are presented to you for an hour? For a day, for a week, for a month. And people start squirming in their seat, getting uncomfortable, and say, oh, no, 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 Kevin, at some point, we just can't do that, and we're just going to sin, and it's just inevitable. Then you don't believe 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Because what you believe is, for every temptation, for a period of time, there's a way of escape. And once you get beyond that period of time, it's gone. For every temptation, for a period of about a month, there's a way of escape. But beyond a month, it's gone. That's not what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. And what's my point? We need to get serious about sin, folks, because on Judgment Day, the Lord knows 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And when we sin, whose fault is it? Oh, it's my nature. It's my clay, feet of clay. It's the, what, my humanity. It's just all the... He says, did you read 1 Corinthians 10, 13? I made you a promise. And in that verse, it's interesting. The focus is really not on us. The focus is on God. It says, but God is faithful. God keeps his promises. If God tells you every temptation has a way of escape... You better believe there's a way to escape every temptation. And so then my question is, how do we sin? Well, maybe we, as we said from the outset, maybe we don't know enough about God's word, don't understand enough about God's word to know that we're even in jeopardy. We don't even know we need to be seeking a way of escape. We think everything's okay. Shame on us. We can study God's word enough. Or maybe we say, well, I, I just I really enjoy this sin. I just don't want to walk through it. But that's not, that's not God's fault. The way of escape is there. You just didn't want to take it. But I'll tell you one thing we're not going to do. 
We're not going to blame God. We're not going to blame Jesus for our sins. Again, when I say, let's get serious about sin, I, the Lord means that. The Lord means that. So I want to encourage us. I think sometimes we get a little lax. We, we won't say what my friend said when he was debating with his wife. Don't we all know that we were saved by grace? We won't say that. But we act as if we believe it. Because we know we've got that sin in our lives. We've been battling for years. Keep giving into it. And we think to ourselves, of this down, that's just 10%, or maybe it's just 1%. And I'm like, you know, I'm a good, I go to church and I study the Bible and I, I'm faithful in my attendance, but are you serious about that 1%? You, know, you might be, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. You might be like every rich angel. But we got to get serious about sin. Obedience is an important thing, that we obey God and His Word. So we've established a couple points. One, to live by the Word of God is to know and understand the Word of God. The second point we establish is to live by the word of God is to obey the word of God. Let me give you a third point and lesson to yours. To live by the word of God is to totally submit yourself to God's will. Say that again. To live by the word of God is to totally submit yourself to God's will. You're going to say, well, that's just like number two. Bear with me. Bear with me. Look at Romans 12, 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2. To live by the word of God is to totally submit ourselves to God's will. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What sacrifices do we offer? We're not offering the blood of bulls. We're not offering the blood of goats. He says, you know, the sacrifice that you offer to me under the New Testament dispensation, that sacrifice is you. Our entire existence is offered to God as a sacrifice. I want you to let that thing sink in for a little bit. Our entire lives, everything about us, what we think, what we feel, what we say, what we do, how we say, everything. Our entire, he says, your entire existence, your bodies are a living sacrifice. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to do anything without my body. <laughs> Everything about us is to be presented to God as a sacrifice. And what's remarkable, we may look at that, and we may think about that, and again, going back to the old saying, everything by moderation, we're like, ooh, wow, that's something special. Ooh, wow, that's going to be super, super hard and difficult. That's extreme. And then he comes back and said, which is your reasonable service? Some versions say rational service. I'm reminded of Jesus, Luke 17, 10. If you've done all that's commanded, all you can simply say is we're unprofitable servants. We have simply done what was our duty to do. When God says, I want all of you, he doesn't say, and boy, that's a major sacrifice for you. He said, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. But it's not something that's overwhelming. It's not something that's undue. It's not something that's unfair. You think about it from this standpoint. God brought us into existence. And, and sometimes we forget this. There was no mandate for God to create any one of us. <laughs> God didn't have to create Brother Tom. God didn't have to create Tim. God didn't have to create me. But he did. Acts 17, Paul told the Athenians, God gives us all life. He gives us all life. What does that mean? Life is a gift. And last time I checked, it's kind of hard to do anything without that gift. And so if God gives you the gift of life, of existence, if you're here because he gave you that, it's a small thing for him to say, oh, by the way, as you live that gift that I gave to you, do it in accordance with my will. 
But that's a small thing, folks. And by the way, Deuteronomy 6.24 says that my will for you is the best thing for you, for our good always. And so and here's what's interesting about it. We've got to totally submit ourselves to the will of God. Think about when that should happen. When should that happen? It should happen when you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about that is this. When we first obey the gospel, what are we? We're babes in Christ, right? Which means we don't understand everything about God's word. There are a lot of things that Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 suggest that over a period of time they ought to be growth. And so your knowledge enhances as you grow in Christ. But when you first sign up, so to speak, you're at that point saying, I'm committed to the entirety of God's will. And here's what you can't do. At that point, you don't know Romans 13, 1 through 7. But five years later, you start studying and you're like, oh, wow. We've got to submit to the governing authorities. Does that mean I've got to pay my taxes? Does that mean I've got to go to the speed limit? What? I didn't sign up for that. Now, wait a minute now. That, that's a little too... No, no. That, that's what you signed up for. That's what, it's a wonderful thing because that decision's already made. There's no wringing of the hands and no anxiety, no anguish. It was, okay, this is what I said. I'm going to totally submit myself to God's will. Here's some part of God's will that I didn't know before. I know now. Guess what? I'm going to do it. Don't do like the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. To live by the word of God is to totally submit ourselves to God's will. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Matthew the 19th chapter, verses 16 through 22. The Bible says, Now behold, one came and said to him, a reference to Jesus, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I might have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but, God, but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You should not murder. You should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you had and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So we have this exchange between the rich young ruler and Jesus. And we rightfully condemn the rich young ruler. But before we jump to the condemnation, let's be impressed with the young man. <laughs> let's be impressed with him because, first of all, he's interested in spiritual things, right? <laughs> he's not out of here just living worldly. He's interested in spiritual things, and he comes to Jesus asking about, well, what, what, what can I do? He knows about obedience. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he said, which ones? And he said, oh, you should not murder, you should not steal. And then he makes a remarkable statement. I want you to let this sink in for a second. All these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I have kept from my youth. And I want you to notice what's conspicuously, conspicuously absent from the text. Jesus didn't say, you're wrong. Jesus didn't challenge that statement. He let that statement stand. But what Jesus says is, it's written again. There's, there's a little more to it. And when he asked him to sell what he had, to give it to the poor, and come follow him, he went away sorrowful because he was too wed to those possessions. So here's the question. For him to say all these things I've kept from my youth, 
Why did he do that? Why did he keep those things? Again, Jesus hadn't challenged that. The, the veracity, the truthfulness of that statement stands unassailed. Why? Why did he do all those things? I, I don't know why he did all those things, but I know one thing. I know why he did not do those things. He did not do all those things because he had totally submitted himself to God's will. You know why I know that? Because, remember, as we said earlier, when you're baptized in the cross, when you become the Lord's, you've totally committed yourself to him. Anything new that comes up, it's just a matter of, didn't understand that before, understand it now, now I'm going to do that. So think about this. If, if the rich young ruler had kept all these things from his youth because he had fully committed himself to God's will, totally submitted himself to God's will, what would you have expected him to do when the Lord says, one thing you like, that's Mark 10, 21, one thing you like, go and sell what you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. What would you expect a person who has totally submitted himself to God's will to do when the Lord says, you missed something? You expect him to do it. And he didn't. Which tells me he didn't do those other things because he had totally submitted himself to God's will. And this will lead a little bit to the sermon this afternoon. We have to ask ourselves, why are we doing the things that we do? Have we indeed totally committed ourselves to God's will? Because we have, then as we study the Bible and grow in knowledge, guess what? There are going to be more and more responsibilities. You're going to learn more and more about God's will. And it's not a, I don't know about that, or that's too hard, or that's too difficult. No, 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 that ship has sailed. You already made the decision. You said, whatever the Lord wants me to do, I'm going to do. And we may be like the rich young ruler. I've always thought that was impressive, because I'm going to tell you, if the Lord was talking to me, it wouldn't be one thing you liked. About 20 things you like. But, but he said one thing that you like. And Mark 10, 21 does say this. Remember this. It says that Jesus loved this rich young ruler. He loved him. He's not a bad man. But he fell short because he was too wedged to his possessions. He wasn't totally submitted to God's will. And we've got to ask ourselves, have we totally submitted ourselves to God's will? Whatever God says, nothing is a step too far. Nothing is a burden too hard for us to bear. When we read God's word and we understand more about it, and friends, I'm going to tell you, as you grow and study, you're going to read some things that challenge you. I still read things that challenge me. Oh, man, does he, does he really mean that? That's kind of tough. Uh-uh. That's what he meant. And you're not doing it, Kevin. You need to start and you repent and do it now. You see that? So it's a constant process of growing and learning more of God's will so we can incorporate more and more of our lives under the umbrella of God's jurisdiction. You see that? But that's to totally submit yourself to God's will. So now, now let me ask the question. As we've established, to live by the word of God is to know and understand God's word. To live by the word of God is to obey God's word. To live by the word of God is to totally submit yourself to God's will. With that understanding of what it means to live by the word of God, now I ask you individually, are you living by the word?